And I, I also just want to say, you know, if you have students that are connected to the student ministry, get to know them. Uh, if you are a person who has maybe been thinking about serving in student ministries with high school or middle school students, I think it's actually a great opportunity to get connected. And uh, maybe you could talk to DJ, and I'm sure he'd be happy to give you some next steps if you're looking to uh, invest in the next generation that way. But we're excited about that. Uh, we are today continuing in a series that we've been calling The Way of Jesus. And so, like I said, if you are just joining us for the first time or you're connecting with us and you haven't been here in a while, uh, we're actually kind of in the middle of this series. But just to briefly catch you up in what we're doing, what we're doing is very straightforward. Uh, we as a church are simply working our way through the Gospel of Luke. And if you're not familiar with the Gospel of Luke, the Gospel of Luke is a first century manuscript that actually speaks about the life in the ministry of Jesus. And so we've just kind of been working our way through that. We've been doing that here on the weekends. I know that some of you have been doing that in your life groups. You've also been going through the Gospel of Luke. And some of you have been doing that with a person. And so maybe you paired up with a couple of people and you're reading through the Gospel of Luke together. And so hopefully uh, that's been something that's been really enriching to you. I know this series has been so awesome. I have just learned a lot and um, I'm so excited about the things that I'm hearing in life group and what's going on with the people of our church. But here's what we've kind of discovered. We said that Luke, Luke does not simply tell us about the events that took place in Jesus's life. But Luke actually exposes us to the way of life that Jesus lived. And so Luke is gonna tell us, he's gonna expose us to the habits and the rhythms of Jesus's life. And we said, this is actually really important. Uh, it's important not just to understand Jesus, but we said it's also important because it helps us understand true discipleship. It helps us understand, of course, discipleship is just a churchy word that just means following Jesus. And so for those of us who are following Jesus or for those of us who are maybe investigating following Jesus, I think this is such a helpful series because it's helping us see this is the way that Jesus took. And so for those of us who follow him, this is the way that we also are uh, to take. And so have been working through the Gospel of Luke together. And so today, uh, as we continue, we are gonna find ourselves in Luke chapter 12. And so without wasting any more time, I wanna invite you to grab your Bible. And if you would open with me together, we're gonna go to Luke 12 here this morning. Okay, so grab your Bibles and meet me there. If you did not bring a Bible with you here today, that's no problem. There should be one under the chairs and you can access Luke 12, page 845. And we always say this, if you don't own a copy of the Bible, you can take one of ours home. That is a gift from us to you. Okay, so we'd love for you to have your own physical copy of the Bible. So Luke 12. Now, as you're getting there, uh, just as a way of teeing up the conversation that uh, we're gonna get into here today and the passage that we're gonna see, I wanna ask you a question, all right? And I want you to really think about this with me for a minute. When is the last time that you, that you shouted the phrase, when is the last time that you shouted the phrase, watch out? I just want you to think about that with me for a minute. When is the last time you legitimately, not just said it, not just casually was like, oh, hey, watch out, but like it was like a watch out. Like when is the last time you forcibly said that? All right, I want you to think about that. Now, I don't know when it was, but maybe for you it was in a car and someone was driving and something happened and they didn't see it and you shouted, watch out. My guess is if you're a parent, you probably said it very recently. Uh, if you have kids, it's probably true. I, I don't know, but, but here's my thought. My guess is that if you're anything like me, that most likely the last time you said this, there was probably two things that were happening, two things that caused you to shout this, right? And the two things are probably this. Number one, someone you cared about was in danger. Someone or something you cared about was in danger. And so there was something that was threatening 
the well-being of someone that you cared about. There was something potentially harmful or disastrous to them. And here's the second thing. They were unaware. They didn't see it. They were blind to it. They were oblivious to it. And that caused you to say, watch out. You yelled at them. Now, if you could think of the last time that you said that and the way that you felt when you did, what I want you to think about here today, what I want to show you is that we're actually going to see a place in the Bible where Jesus tells us to watch out. All right, we are going to see a place where Jesus says in a very strong way, watch out, watch out. And why does Jesus say watch out? For the same, for the same reasons we do. Because someone that he cares about is in danger. The people that he loves are in danger. And oftentimes we are entirely unaware, entirely unaware. So what is it that we're going to see in this passage? Okay, well, let me just tell you, as we work through the passage that we're about to read, I simply want to organize our talk around four phrases that Jesus is going to use. So I was trying to think of what's the best outline for today's message. And so I just picked four phrases that we're going to see in this passage that I think do a really great job of summarizing the entire teaching. All right, so let me just give you the four phrases and then we'll work our way through them. So we're gonna see Jesus say in today's section, watch out, greed. This is, you kind of see where this is going. Watch out for greed, you fool. So Jesus is actually gonna say fool and then uh, he's gonna talk about being rich towards God. All right, so I think this actually serves, like I said, as a very simple outline for our conversation. So let's think through and unpack these different things that Jesus says. He starts off by saying, watch out, watch out. So what was the circumstances that surround the situation that caused Jesus to say this? What was it? Well, let's look starting off in verse 13. So here's what the Bible says. It says, someone in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. All right, so before we go any further, let me just give you a little context. I think it'd be kind of helpful. Um, if you've been going through the Gospel of Luke, you might know that back in chapter 12, verse 1, the Bible tells us that the crowds were pressing into Jesus. There was literally thousands of people that were, pre- the, the, the crowds were absolutely immense. So these massive crowds, and then right before this, in the 12 verses that, that are previous to verse 13, the Bible's gonna tell us that Jesus is teaching I mean, just some pretty heavyweight spiritual stuff to this massive crowd. And so in that section, Jesus, for example, teaches about the dangers of religious hypocrisy. Uh, He teaches about, in that section, the importance of fearing God over fearing man. He talks about that. In this section, he talks about things like blaspheming the Holy Spirit. And all I'm saying is, even if you're like, I don't even know what that stuff is, I'm just saying those are some pretty heavyweight spiritual issues that Jesus is teaching. And then all of a sudden you get to verse 13 and some guy in the crowd, and we don't know anything about him, he just suddenly jumps in and this is what he says. He says, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Teacher. Now, now as I was reading this, I just thought, man, that seems, verse 13 seems totally disjointed from everything that Jesus was just talking about. It seems like Jesus is talking about all these incredible spiritual things and then all of a sudden this guy just breaks in. It almost seems to me when I was reading this that it almost seems like this guy, it's almost like he can't wait for Jesus to stop talking about the things that he's talking about so that he can talk about the thing that he wants to talk about. And he's like, yeah, 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 Jesus, I get it. Blasphemy the Holy Spirit, but I'm okay, but here's my thing, all right? And what's his thing? Tell my brother to, to split the inheritance with me. Now, we're actually not told much more about the scenario, but apparently there's a conflict that this guy is having with his brother, and apparently it's one that's over an inheritance. It's over 
money. And I think the way that this guy poses his statement is actually very revealing. Do you notice when he comes to Jesus, the way that he asks him this question, and actually he doesn't even ask him a question, is he just demands him. He says, Jesus, hey, Jesus, tell my brother. Tell him. In other words, Jesus, tell my brother, I'm I'm asking you to endorse and I'm asking you to reinforce the conclusion that I have already come to. He doesn't come to Jesus and he doesn't say, hey, Jesus, you're a good teacher. My brother and I are having this issue and we can't seem to resolve it. And I was wondering if I could borrow your wisdom. Do you think you could give me some, some discernment? Can you help? Am I thinking, he doesn't say that. He doesn't come to Jesus and say, Jesus, you're a good teacher. I, you know, you, you're, you're teaching good stuff. Do you think that you could help me discern what the best action would be in this situation? That's not what he says. He comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, tell him. Tell him the thing I've been telling him. Reinforce the thing that I've been thinking. Endorse my opinion. And so Jesus, how does he respond? Well, in a very Jesus-like way, right? So Jesus responds to him in verse 14. And he says, Jesus replied, man, and I don't know how he actually said it, but that's <laughs> Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? And it's actually really fascinating because if you have ever read the Gospels, you actually know this. Jesus was actually given authority by God to judge everything. And yet Jesus says something fascinating to this guy. He says, who made me the judge and arbiter of you? Even though Jesus has authority to judge everything, the Bible says he refuses to enter this man's dispute. Now, why is that? Well, I think it's pretty clear by the way that Jesus responds why it is that he doesn't enter into this dispute. I think Jesus masterfully sees something deeper in this guy's heart. Jesus is always doing this. He's always getting to the deeper issue. He's always getting to the matter of the heart. And so what does Jesus do? Here's what he does. Check out the next verse. So then he said to them, now notice he stops talking to just the man and now he's talking to the crowd. So now it's a teaching moment. And what does Jesus say to the crowd, to his disciples? Here's what he says to them. He says, watch out, watch out. Be on guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. So Jesus uses a pretty strong word. Watch out, exclamation point. It actually comes from a uh, pretty strong Greek word. Sometimes it's translated beware. Sometimes it's take caution. Sometimes it's translated take care. So this is a strong word, beware, watch out. But I think what makes it even stronger, I don't know if you noticed this, is actually that he doesn't just say watch out, but he goes on to say another word that is essentially the same. It's a different word, but he almost repeats himself. So he says, watch out, but then he says, and be on guard. So two very, very strong words. Uh, the word for watch out means beware, take caution. The Greek word for be on guard, it's actually a military term. And what it literally means is it means to provide protective vigilance. It means to be alert. It means to protect yourself from an enemy intruder. And so you see what Jesus, I mean, this is very, very strong. Jesus says, look out, watch out, beware. Man, you need to stand guard. You need to keep your eyes out. You need to be vigilant for something. You have to watch out. And so we're like, okay, okay, I get it. Big deal, Jesus, right? We need to watch out. We need to look out. We need to be on guard. Against what? Against what? And Jesus says, greed. You have to look out for all kinds of greed, all kinds of greed. Now, that is very, very, very interesting. Jesus says, watch out for greed. You know, I thought this was fascinating. I was just thinking about this. Our culture that we live in, it tells us that we need to watch out 
for a lot of things. Our culture says, look out, beware, be on guard against many things. So our culture says, look out, for example, for scammers. Be careful of porch pirates. So get ring or whatever you you need to get. Look out, what's the big one right now? Watch out for COVID. And so we take great measurements to make sure that we are taking precautions against those things. Fascinatingly, Jesus says, look out, watch out for what? For greed. Now, what is that exactly? You know, when we say the word greed, I think a lot of us have different things that come to our mind, but what exactly does Jesus mean when he says greed? I actually think it's helpful. There's a Greek word that's used here, and it's the word pleonexia, pleonexia. It's actually kind of fun to say, and I know you want to give it a shot. So why don't you turn to someone next to you and say pleonexia. Just say the word pleonexia. It almost, it almost kind of sounds like a disease, doesn't it? You're like, oh, did you hear about John? It came down with pleonexia, right? Pleonexia. And what is that? Sometimes it's translated covetousness. Sometimes it's translated greed. It literally is, here it is, the best way to think about it, it is the insatiable desire for more. That's what it is. It is the unquenchable thirst to just acquire and to have more. Sometimes it's translated avarice. You may have heard that before. And why does Jesus tell us that we have to watch out for greed? Why does he say that? For the very same reason that we tell people to watch out for things. Jesus tells us to watch out because first off, someone that he cares about, us, someone that he loves, us, is in potential danger. And yet, we are completely unaware of it. We are completely unaware. Here's why I think Jesus, and by the way, it is, man, it is so hard for me to emphasize how often in Jesus' teaching, he is warning us against the dangers of greed and pleonexia and money and possessions. It is so hard to emphasize how often he does this. He says, watch out, watch out. Why? Because greed, greed is almost unlike other sins in that it is so sneaky. It is so hard to detect. And I find really fascinating, Jesus doesn't say this about other sins. He doesn't say, watch out for murder. He doesn't say, watch out for adultery. And why is that? Well, because I think, obviously, those sins, it's, it's, it's a little bit more obvious when you're committing them, right? You're not like, oops, <laughs> murdered you. Like, that's not how I, it's not like, it's definitely not like that with adultery either. You're not like, hey, you're not my spouse. Like, that's not how it works. And so, but Jesus, he does say, look out for what? For greed. Look out for greed, he says, because it's sneaky. It's sneaky and it's hard. It is hard to identify. I think it's fascinating. Um, Commentators point out that Jesus warns against the dangers of money and possessions and greed more than heaven and hell combined in his teaching. And this is also a major, a major theme in the gospel of Luke. In fact, if I could just show you, since we're studying Luke, let me show you a few things that this actually thought was kind of blew my mind a little bit. The idea of wealth in the gospel of Luke shows up so frequently, it is a major theme. But you know, of the four gospels, and so uh, there are actually four first century accounts of the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Of those four, Luke has the most to say about wealth, poverty, and the dangers of riches. He talks about it more than anybody else. In addition to that, one out of every seven verses in the Gospel of Luke, on average, speaks about money and or possessions. That's a huge percentage. However, and I think this is actually really important for us to understand, Luke is actually not a preacher against the rich. I think this is really important that we see this. 
Luke is not a preacher against the rich. It's better to think of him as an evangelist to the rich. That's probably a more helpful way to think of it. I actually thought this was really interesting. Luke and Acts, so the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts, which are both in your New Testament, written by the same guy. They were written by Luke to the same person. They were written to a man named Theophilus. And what's fascinating is we have incredible indication that both Luke and Theophilus would have been wealthy people. So Theophilus is called most excellent Theophilus. And that term most excellent would have been a, it would have been a title of high notoriety. So Theophilus was most likely a very wealthy, prestigious person. Luke, many of you guys might know this, Luke was actually a doctor. He was a doctor and he was well-educated. You can tell by the way he writes his gospels. The, the Greek that, that Luke uses is a very sophisticated version of Greek. And so most likely, Luke, it's, it's probably better for us to think, Luke was not a poor man writing to another poor man about the evils of riches. It's not what it was. It's probably more accurate to think that Luke was a rich man who was writing to another rich man to show him how to follow Jesus as a rich person. And so I think Luke wants to help the wealthy avoid the dangers of wealth and truly follow Jesus, which I actually think gives us yet another reason why the gospel of Luke is so relevant to so many of us. Because he's trying to help us see how do wealthy people, how do people who have an abundance serve Jesus and follow him? And Luke's trying to show us how to do that. I think that's a big thing. And so, so Jesus says, look out. You gotta be on the lookout for pleonexia. Look out for greed. And then he goes on, and I love that he does this, to help clarify what he means, he gives us a parable. Jesus was always so good at this. He said, let me give you a parable to help you with this. And so look at verse 16. And so he told him this parable. He said, the ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. Okay, so he starts to set up a parable. He says, once upon a time, there was a rich man, a very, very wealthy person, a rich guy. And apparently he was a farmer because the Bible says, now notice this, that the ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. Now, I don't know why, but I thought that, that really struck me as interesting that Jesus said, the ground produced an abundant harvest, the ground why is that important? Well, keep it in the back of your mind. I actually want to come back to it. I think it's actually kind of significant. So he says, the ground of a certain rich man, now notice this, yielded an abundant harvest. So apparently the, the, the field that he had was producing very well, right? It was, it was producing an abundant harvest. So I think before we go further in the parable, it's important that we notice, um, so far, so good, right? This guy has done not, nothing unethical. There has been no sin that has happened, he is simply a wealthy person who his business is flourishing. Nothing evil, nothing sinful. He's done nothing unethical up to this point. I think it's important that we, we note that the fact that this guy had a lot is not, is not the evil that we're gonna see in this parable. That's not it. That is not what's happening. Quite literally, what we see is here's a guy who like literally picked the right field to go into. And his field is now producing. It's producing, and that's fine. And he has a lot. His business is flourishing. He has an abundance. But now what's gonna happen is you're gonna see that in light of this, he develops a problem. And what's his problem? Well, his problem, I think what we're gonna see, is quite honestly a problem that many of us maybe kind of wish we had. And I think what we're gonna see is the problem that he has is actually a problem that if we were being really honest, I think many of us do have, but we might not even be aware that we have it. And what is his problem? Well, look what he says. He thought to himself, what am I gonna do? I have no place to store my crops. Here's his problem. He's got too much. 
He says, I have too much. I have, to, I have more than I need. I have far more than I need. I have more than I know what to do with. This is the problem that he has. And so he starts to think, what am I gonna do? What am I gonna do? I have too much. I got all this. It's coming my way. I'm not sure what to do with that. What am I gonna do? So he decides to seek wise counsel. This guy decides that he is gonna seek out the wisest person that he knows to get advice. And so do you know who he goes and talks to? Himself. That's what he does. And so look what happens. He says, I don't know what I'm gonna do. I have no place to store my crops. So then he said, this is what I'll do. I'm gonna tear down my barns and I'm gonna build bigger ones. And then I'm gonna store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, self, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. And I, you know, I don't know if this strikes you in the same way it did me, but when I was reading it this week, one of the things that really struck me was the unbelievable amount of my's and I's in this little speech that he gives to himself. Do you notice this? 12 times he says, uh, he thought to himself, what am I going to do? I have no place to store my crops. And then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and I will store my surplus. And then I'll say to myself, you have plenty, take it easy. And just over and over again, he is addressing himself. Some of you have the ESV version. And I actually love the way the ESV puts it. It says this, he says, and then I'll say to my soul, soul. And I don't know why that really struck me as funny. So this guy consults himself, what should I do? And then he comes up with a great plan. And his plan is this, I'm gonna tear down my barns, I'm gonna build bigger ones so it can hold more stuff and then I'll take life easy. So actually, um, his plan I think is pretty straightforward, but I actually came up with a kind of a complex diagram that explains his plan. So let me just show it to you, this was it. <laughs> he said, um, I got a lot of stuff and it, I have so much that it doesn't fit here, so I'm gonna tear it down, I'm gonna build a bigger one. That was his plan. Now, let me just say, at this point, I think, I think it's important that we recognize that he is maybe, there's probably indication that he has fallen into something that I actually heard uh, one person say, I thought this was really great. They called it the consumption assumption. And what is the consumption assumption? Here's what it is. It is the assumption that everything that comes my way is for me. That is the consumption assumption. Oh, look, more, more is coming my way. That must mean it's for me. And that's what this guy decides. And so he says, I'm gonna tear down my barn and I'm gonna build a bigger barn. And often as riches increase, so does our appetite for more. I think this is a big symptom of pleonexia. I think it's a symptom of greed. Now, um, I do think too, at this point, before we continue reading, I think it's important that I ask you this question. So I want you to, as you've been reading this, I want you to think about this. Don't answer me out loud. I want you to think about this. As we've been reading this, do you at all find yourself identifying with this man? Just curious. Because here's, here's a danger that I think can happen. I think sometimes when we read parables like this, we can read this and we can say, oh yeah, this guy. Yeah, I, I see what it's saying. That's not me. That's not, I could think of three other people right now who fit that, but it's not me. And maybe that's what you're thinking. Maybe you're like, oh, this reminds me of that. He, maybe you're sitting next to someone, you're like, they need to hear this. And that's what's going on. But, but here's the problem. And I think this actually proves Jesus' point. It is very hard for us to see ourselves in this person. I mean, first off, let's just, we read it and it says he's rich. And we're like, well, we're not, we're not rich. I, we might, you're thinking to yourself, well, I'm not rich. That's clearly not me. This couldn't be me. And he wants to buy bigger barns. I'm not even in the barn market. <laughs> so like, this guy's not me. This can't be me. But I think, once again, this is just evidence that what Jesus is saying is something that we need to be careful of. Listen, Here's the truth. First off, 
Are we rich? Are we rich? And, you know, that's always such a hard question because the word rich is, it's comparative, it's relative. Who's rich and who's poor, it all depends on what you're comparing it to. However, if you just want to do the comparison thing, if you just want to look, relatively speaking, here's the reality. Globally and historically speaking, us who are here in this room and who are watching online, who live in the place that we do, in the time that we live in right now, globally and historically, we are the wealthiest of all people in all of humanity. This is true. Uh, you guys have seen stats like this. You, yeah, I don't need to show this to you, but we've all seen stats like this. According to the global rich list, if your median household income is $63,000, that's your whole household, this place is a family in the top. Look at this, 0.17, point, not 1, 0.17% of the richest people in the world. That is far beyond the top 1% politicians talk about. The median worldwide income is less than $2,000 a year. According to Pew Research, the global median income status is $10 a day, which means that even those who are considered poor in America are still above the global middle class. And so all I'm saying is, I mean, we could look at so many, a plethora of statistics that are out there. I think the fact that it's hard for us sometimes to recognize that we are in this category, I think sometimes that's hard. It's, it, it just proves what Jesus is saying. It's hard to see, it's hard to see. And then of course we might be saying, well, I don't have this issue. I'm not, I'm not looking to build a bigger barn. Or maybe you actually are looking to build a bigger barn. Like that's happening in your life right now. And if that is, this is a really awkward passage for you today. <laughs> but, um, but maybe it's not that. But here's the truth. The insatiable desire for bigger and more. Come on, let's just be honest. This is the air that our culture breathes. This is, this is just one of the characteristics. It is a staple characteristic of our society. And we've just seen it. We see it, for example, in square footage of our homes. I mean, without a doubt, there's so many studies that talk about the comparison of homes in the 1950s compared to homes today. I was just looking at one according to Compass Real Estate. It actually said in the 1950s, the average new home was 983 square feet with an average household size of 3.37 people, which meant that on average, 292 square feet per person in living space. The most popular colors for kitchen appliances were canary yellow and petal pink. I don't know what that has to do with anything, but I was like, yeah, I'll throw it in there. So it's kind of fun. Today, in the last decade, in the, 2000, in the, in the 2010s, the average new home offers two, uh, 924 square feet per person, 2.59 people per household at uh, 2,300 total square feet, three times the space afforded in the 1950s. So it's interesting, and we all know this, the, the family size is getting smaller and the house size is getting bigger. You see this not just with homes, and actually this was interesting, because of this parable, it actually made me look, and I was just curious about storage in America. And so fascinatingly, you see the same thing. Uh, according to storagecafe.com, self-storage has grown to more than 1.6 billion square feet of space in 2021. Over the span of the last five years, 152.3 million square feet of storage space was built. I thought this was interesting. One in three Americans use self-storage and many storage units are bigger than the average single-family house in many countries. So think about this for a minute. The family size is getting smaller, house size are getting bigger, and the accumulation of goods is such that we need another house for our stuff. And I'm just saying, I, it's, just, it's just the air we breathe. I don't even think we even notice that it's in the air, and I think that's why Jesus says, you have to watch out. We have to be Careful, because as our possessions increase, what can happen sometimes is our appetite for more increases. I like the way one Dutch author put it. 
He said it this way, very pointedly. He said, greed is a fat demon with a small mouth, and whatever you feed it is never enough. And you know what? If I, if I could actually add something to this quote in light of Jesus' teaching, I might say this. Greed is a sneaky fat demon. It is a sneaky devil. And I think that, I think that what we see is that there is a, a real danger that comes with pleonexia. So this guy, what's his plan? I'm going to tear down my barns. I'm going to build bigger ones. And then he says, and then I'm going to say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life ease. Eat, drink, and be merry. Now, can we just be honest for a second and say that to our modern sensibilities, this guy's plan seems pretty smart. I mean, can we just be honest and say that I think according to the way that a lot of us think, this seems like a really good plan. What's his plan? Here's his plan. Have enough that I can buy what I want today, store enough so I can buy what I want tomorrow, and procure enough so that I never have to work again. That's his plan. And I think many of us would say, it kind of sounds like a good plan. And if we're honest, many of us might even be saying, it actually sounds like the plan that I'm on. Sounds smart, sounds wise. What's God's evaluation? What does God say? Well, look at the next part. You fool, you fool. Here's, here's what God says. But God said to him, you fool, you fool. Now again, when God calls someone a fool, I think we really wanna pay attention. Why? Why is he calling this guy a fool? Is it because he had a lot? I don't think that was it. I don't think I was it. Why is he a fool? Well, look what he says to him. He says, look, this very night, this very night, your life is going to be demanded from you. This very night. In other words, he says to him, you're a fool. Why are you a fool? He says, because you work so hard and you stored up all this stuff. And he says, and now you're out of time. You're not out of grain, but you're out of time. You're not out of money, but you're out of time. And then he asks this question to him. He says, and then who's going to get all this stuff that you have stored up for yourself? And of course, the answer to that question, we all know this, who's gonna get all that he stored up for himself? The answer is someone else. And not because he's being generous, but because he's dead. Someone else is gonna get it. And he says to him, you fool. Why is it that Jesus calls this guy a fool? Is it because he had a lot? No, I don't think that's it. I think it's because this guy spent his entire life, he wasted his life pursuing and stockpiling something that could not and did not last. I think that's what it is. It's interesting, as I was studying this passage and I was reading God's assessment uh, and evaluation of this, I couldn't help but think of, this is gonna sound so weird to you, but I couldn't help but think of this, this, this video game that I, um, I'm almost embarrassed, I'm almost embarrassed to admit this to you. It's a video game that I really got sucked into a few years ago. And so it is the dumbest game. Uh, but my kids were playing, I'm not, I'm not the biggest video game person by any stretch of the imagination. My kids were playing this game and um, I was like, what do you guys play? And they showed me how to play it. And I'm just telling you, it is the dumbest game. It's called Slither.io. I think you guys have ever played this game. If you've never played it, don't. It is terribly addicting. Uh, but the premise, is, the premise is, it's so silly. The premise is this. You're a worm. You're a worm. And you have to go around and eat dots. That, this is the game. I'm telling you, this is so dumb. You go around and you eat dots. And the objective of the game is to get as big as you can. You wanna be the biggest worm. And so you're competing against other worms. You can kill the other worms and eat them and get bigger, all right? And so what happens when, when you, you fight, so it takes a long time and a lot of effort, and eventually, if you could become the biggest worm, guess what happens? 
Nothing. <laughs> Nothing. And then the objective of the game is then stay the biggest worm. And how long do you stay the biggest worm? Until you die or until you quit. This is the game. And so it actually started off, I'd play it with my kids and we kind of like playing it together. But then it kind of started getting to a place where it was unhealthy because I'd play it with my kids and then they would leave and I'd still be playing it. And I was like, this is not good. And then I started playing it at nighttime. And I remember on one, I got so sucked in on this game. I remember one time it was two in the morning and I was trying to get as, the, you know, I was trying to get as big as I could. And at one point, I had to be up early the next day. And I just remember thinking to myself, you fool. This is so dumb. Why are you doing it? And so I had to delete the game and get it off. My, I had to go to counseling for a while. It's bad, right? And, but listen, I, I, hear me. I'm not anti-entertainment. I'm not anti-games. It's all fun and good. But here's, here's my point. Isn't it true that we can so easily slip into the same stupid game? What is life? You just go around and just go from one big thing to the next big thing. Just get as big as you can. The next the next investment, the next promotion, the bigger house, the bigger, until when? Until you're as big as you can get, and then what? And then nothing, and then nothing. Listen, I think Jesus loves us a lot, and I don't think he's trying to save us from abundance. I think he's trying to save us from stupidity. Don't waste your life. Don't waste it. I had a buddy of mine. He uh, actually was teaching a college class, and he decided to take his college students on a field trip. And he took them to three locations. I actually thought this was kind of genius. So he took them, the first place he took them was to a water and sewer treatment facility in Akron. You guys know that one? He took them there. And then after that, he took them to a landfill. And then after that, he took them to a graveyard. And this is what he said. He said, I want you guys to know that everything, every meal that you ever eat, every expensive food that you buy is gonna end up here, which is kind of gross, but true. And he said, everything that you buy, every single thing that you buy is going to end up here. And he said, and I want you to know that every one of us is going to end up here. He said, I think that if you can frame your reality within those, if you can frame your, your thinking within those realities, that is going to help you make some very good decisions in life. I thought he was right. I think he's absolutely right about that. You see, Jesus is not trying to save us from abundance. I don't think that matters. I think he's trying to save us from stupidity. Don't waste your life. And so he says, you fool. Now, let me just say, I think we gotta hit pause here because I think for some of us, we see these things. Watch out for greed, you fool. And we think to ourselves, well, you see, that's the thing. Jesus is always like, Jesus is always anti-money. Jesus is like, you should never enjoy anything. You should never have a nice house or nice stuff. You should never invest. You should never save. You should sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and wear you know, some kind of sackcloth for the rest of your life and just live in a box and eat beans. That's what Jesus wants you to do. So some of us can go the other way. And we can say, oh, see, the answer is that we should renounce wealth and we should renounce resources because they're evil. And let me just say, I, I think, listen, this will prove my point very quickly. If, if money and, and possessions were evil, if that was true, if Jesus thought that money was evil, why would he tell us to give it to the poor? Why would he be like, oh, that's evil, give it to them. Like, that, seems, that seems cruel. The Bible's gonna say things like this. It's gonna say that we should, we should invest. It's gonna say that we should save. If you look at the wise counsel of God's word, it says if you don't, if you don't work, you don't eat. It says in God's word, it says this. It says that if a, if a person cannot provide for their family, that they're worse off than an unbeliever. 
And so it's gonna talk about the importance of dealing with finances wisely. The Bible's also gonna say this. It's gonna say that God gave us everything for our enjoyment. And so there's things that we enjoy in life. And so we have to, we have to make sure that we're looking at the full counsel of God's word. However, and this is an important however, while all that is true, we should enjoy things, we should invest wisely, we should save wisely. Listen, I, I, my, my, here's the thing. We cannot let those truths drown out the warning that Jesus is giving us. He is giving us a warning for a reason and he loves us and he says, be careful. And so here, here's my thought. If you're a follower of Jesus, and I know not, not everyone is, but if you're a follower of Jesus, like, like I'm a follower of Jesus, if we don't walk away from his teaching, if we don't walk away from his words, it, at least reevaluating and revisiting and maybe even for some of us reworking certain parts of our life, I don't know if we're heeding the warning that he's giving us. So I think we need to let that set in. I, I, I mean, I understand there's some awkwardness in this conversation, but I think the words of Jesus bring life. And so we need to heed the warning that he's giving. So the answer is, okay, if we don't renounce wealth, if that's not what Jesus wants us to do, then how are we supposed to respond? How do we break the grips of greed and pleonexia in our life? Well, here's where I think you get to the last thing. I think we gotta be rich towards God. I think this is the answer. I don't think the answer is to renounce abundance. I think it's to become rich towards God. This is what he says. This is how it'll be for whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich towards God. It's a very interesting phrase. Basically, what, what Jesus says here is he says, this man, the problem was, not that he was rich, the problem is that he was rich to himself, but he forgot three really important things. He had a great plan, but he forgot three really important things. God, others, and his own mortality. He, was, he did not think about eternity. And because of that, here we have the tragic account of a man who is materially rich, but was spiritually poor. So as we look to wrap up our time here today, uh, what I wanna do is I wanna end by just asking you in light of Jesus' teaching to do two things with me. All right, and here, here, here they are. I wanna ask you to search your heart, okay? And I wanna ask you to search your heart. Like we said, this pleonexia, greed, is hard to see. And so I want you to search your heart and maybe invite God into this moment to help you as you do that. And the second thing I wanna do is I wanna give you steps to guard your heart, okay? Search your heart and guard your heart. So let's search our hearts. So I created, uh, this is just super quick, an at-home pleonexia test, all right? So let's just see. Search your heart, talk to God, and here's some questions that I developed um, based off of Jesus' teaching. So here's the first one. Ask yourself, maybe even pray about this right now. Is my money and my stuff the source of my worth? To what degree is, are my possessions, is my money connected to my sense of worth? And so do I find that how I feel about myself is determined by how I size up and compare to others. Yeah, I think it's really interesting. A very famous politician one time said, I thought this was really good. He said, when you finally get to the top, your first inclination is not to be happy, but it's to look around. Greed is inherently competitive. And I think what happens sometimes is even if you don't have a lot of money or a lot of possessions, this can be a symptom. Do you find that when you see people who have more than you do, that you tend to think that they are, that they are better than you as a person? And do you think that when people have less than you, that you're better than them? Is that, do you see a sense of worth attached to it? I think that's important because I think it's a symptom of pleonexia. How about this one? Is my money the source of my worry? So maybe not my worth, but it's the source of my worry and security. I don't think it's by any coincidence that right after this teaching, Jesus goes on to talk about worry. 
I think he does that because he knows the human heart. And so we have to ask ourselves that question. Is my worry attached to my possessions and my wealth? Do I find that my emotional well-being is attached to my bank account or is attached to my investment portfolio or is attached to how the stock market is doing that day? How often do I check those things, right? Do we find, maybe this way, do you find that you only feel safe when you're while, you're, while your financial prospects are abundant? And do you find that you're intolerably vulnerable when they're not? I think we have to ask those questions because I think that that is an indication of pleonexia in our heart. How about this one? Is money the source of my comfort and joy? Have we bought into the idea that the way to be happy is to have more? That if I just had more, then I'd be happy. Do we believe that? In the fiber of our being, is that the, is that the narrative that we are, we are buying? Do we find, this is a big one, do we find that we will medicate or numb negative emotions by spending? So do you find that, man, if I'm sad, well, I'll just buy some stuff. Or I'm bored, well, if I buy something, that'll make me feel better. And I think that sometimes, I think sometimes that can be an indication, it can be a symptom of pleonexia. Is my money stuff the cause of my biggest conflicts? Do you find that in your marriage or in your relationship, you see this brother fighting with his brother about an inheritance. Do you find that the bulk of your conflicts are based off of finances, stuff, possessions? I think that might be an indication. How about this one? Am I stingy with my money and my stuff? Am I st you know, this guy thought that everything that came his way was for him. I think in addition to that, do I find that I stockpile my money and my stuff? Do I hoard it? Do I hoard it, right? Do we have the consumption assumption that everything that comes my way is for me? And then this is the last one. Do I feel entitled to it? Do I think I worked hard for it? You know, I think it's, it's really important. We talked about this earlier in this passage. Jesus says the ground of a certain rich man produced a lot. I think we need to recognize our incredible dependence on God. Some of us think, well, I worked hard, man. I built this business from, from, with my own grit. Well, of course, that's probably true. You probably did work hard, but... We have to ask who gave you the intellect that you have, who allowed you to be born in the time that you were born into, who gave you the opportunities of the family. I mean, we are so dependent upon God. And so as you're thinking about that, I think it's just good to search your heart. And sometimes it's hard to do. I'll be honest with you, as I was preparing this list, I was like, ooh, man, some of this stings, some of this stings. But the question is, well, what do you do though? If you see this in your heart, what do you do? And so I actually just want to give you just, the, just some, some things about being rich towards God. I think Jesus actually gives us some very practical ideas of how to do this, some very practical ideas. At the very end of this chapter, Jesus is going to say this. He's going to say, seek his kingdom, seek the kingdom of God, and everything else is going to be given to you. Don't be afraid, little flock. Your father's been pleased to give you the kingdom. So sell your stuff and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that don't wear out, a treasure in heaven that will never fail, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I think that here you see some incredible insight from Jesus. And I believe that in here, you see four practical ways, four very practical ways, steps that you can take to guard your heart, to guard our hearts against greed. And what would they be? Well, I think here's the first one. I think first, Jesus is gonna say, you want to guard against greed? Here's, here's a good way to do it. Seek first the things of the kingdom. Seek first the things of the kingdom. In this passage, he says, seek first the kingdom and everything else is going to be added to you. What does that even mean to seek first the kingdom? Here, here's practically what I think that means. Practically speaking, I think it means that followers of Jesus should prioritize generosity before 
spent before spending, before saving, before investing, the first thing that we should do with what God has given us is to prioritize kingdom matters. This actually stems from an Old Testament principle. Some of you guys know this. It was actually a law in the Old Testament. God told his people to tithe. And tithing was basically a percentage. God said, give 10% off the top of what you get to the things of God first. It is an act of faith and an act of obedience. And it is a way of freeing our hearts from greed and pleonexia. Now, when you get in the New Testament, I would say, I don't think that law applies anymore. However, I think the heart is still active and is real. And I think the, the issue is this. Will I prioritize that before anything else, generosity? Will I prioritize giving to the things of God? I can just tell you that my wife and I, uh, ever since we started seriously following Jesus, we've made this a pattern that we have determined a percentage and our heart is to increase that percentage where we say, first, we're gonna give to these things that we know are priorities to God and his kingdom. And so we do that. And that's been, that's been a practice that we've had ever since we've truly encountered the teaching of Jesus. You know, I think the big issue here is it's really about priority. It's recognizing that our money is not a gift, it is a tool. I love what Randy Alcorn said. The clear teaching of the New Testament is that we are to be channels of money and possessions, not storehouses. Whatever role that savings has in our lives, it should always be secondary to giving and it must never be a substitute for trusting God. Mike is right on about that. So I think one of the first things we can do is we can, we can prioritize generosity. Here's another thing. I think we give to the poor. We give to the poor. Jesus just says this. He just says it. He says, sell your possessions and give to the poor. The Bible is gonna tell us over and over again, God has a heart for the orphan, for the widow, and he's gonna talk about the poor. And that these are people who are in, in disenfranchised situations. God has a heart for them. And so God says, I want you to be generous towards them. I, think, I love what Proverbs says. Proverbs 19 says this. It says, whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord and he will repay him. I love what Augustine, one of the church fathers said after reading the parable about the rich man. Do you know what he said? I thought this was so good. He said, this man, the rich man did not realize that the bellies of the poor were much safer storerooms than his barns. And that's really good. That's really good. Yeah, I think one of the ways that we can, we can enact Jesus' teaching is give to the things that break his heart. The widow, the orphan, the poor. There's a million organizations out there and um, those kind of things. Uh, third, I think we could store up treasures in heaven. Jesus says this. He says, provide purses that will not wear out. A treasure in heaven that will never fail, where no thief or rust or anything is gonna destroy it. Here's what's going on. Jesus calls this guy a fool, not because he was storing up stuff for himself in a storehouse. He calls himself a fool because he was storing himself up stuff in a storehouse that didn't last. He's like, you actually can store it up in a storehouse that lasts. There is an eternal reality that what you do today can actually impact. See, I think what he's trying to do is he's trying to wake us up to the brevity of life. Love what Psalm 90 says. Teach us to number our days that we might gain a heart of, notice this, wisdom. He calls this guy a fool. Why is he a fool? He never numbered his days. One of the greatest things we can do is live with eternity in view and in mind. Here's the last thing. And with this, I'll invite the band to come up. I think this is so big. How do we be rich towards God? Well, listen, I think, man, we seek first the kingdom, we give to the poor, we seek out storehouses in heaven. And here, here's the big one. I think we have to soak in the love and generosity of Jesus. Can I, can I just tell you guys, I'll just be real transparent with you. As I was preparing today's message over the course of this week, I had a big fear. And this is a big fear. I've been praying about it all week. 
And I'll just tell you what it is. Here's my fear. My fear is that in light of today's conversation, that you would just walk away feeling guilty. That was my fear. And I just don't want that to happen. Now, let me just clarify. I am entirely okay if the way that God's people walk away from Jesus' words is convicted. Conviction is okay. I think conviction leads to action, which leads to transformation, which leads to freedom. Because Jesus loves us, he warns us. So I'm okay with conviction. But my hope is that it's not greed, this enslaving feeling that you're just never doing enough. And I just tell you, greed is a powerful motivator. It is. I think it's a really unhealthy motivator. And what is the right motivator? Well, I think this is it. It is the generosity of Jesus Christ. And I think that when we can soak that in, how generous Jesus has been to look at his life and to ingest that and to let that animate that we live, the way that we live, I think that that is what God is calling us to. I think that's it. I, I really love what it says in Luke 12. He says, don't be afraid, little flock. This is what, this is, this is what Jesus says to us. Listen to, listen to his words. Don't be afraid, little flock. I love you. I care. I am your shepherd. Don't be afraid, your father has been pleased to give you. He's so generous. He's given us the kingdom. I think this is why in 2 Corinthians, it actually says this. He says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus, that though he was rich for your sake, he became poor, so that through his poverty, he might become rich. And it's no wonder to me that in the very next chapter, the apostle Paul goes on to say this. By the way, I think this is important because some of us in light of this conversation, we're like, well, how much is too much? How much should I save? How much should I invest? How much should I give? I, I need help with that. And let me just say, this is where a sermon has to end, has to end, and conversations and prayer have to begin. But I think that this is helpful. Each one of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give. You talk to God about it. You decide, not reluctantly. So if you're like, well, I guess yeah, I'm supposed to because the pastor said, then don't or under compulsion, God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. Let's pray. Well, Jesus, there's a lot here. There's definitely a lot. Uh, a lot to consider, a lot to think through, especially given the fact that um, we find ourselves in the time and place with the, with the resources that we have. And so, Father, I, I want to say thank you that you love us so much and you care about us so much that you're willing to warn us when there's something that we don't see that is potentially threatening to harm us. I know that that is your heart. And so I pray that you would help us to hear your voice, Jesus. I pray in these next moments that you would speak with us, that you would meet with us, and that you would even maybe speak to some of us specifically in areas that we might need to revisit or readdress or be reconfirmed in. So God, I pray that as we worship and we sing that you would speak to us and meet us here. We ask it in Jesus' name.